0: Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio, I'm Valerie Bowling. In this podcast, we share a keynote from DFarm 2018 with Dr. Anthony Atala of the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Dr. Atala shared a fascinating presentation on how it's possible to reduce the number of patients needed in clinical trials with the advancement of regenerative medicine and how regenerative medicine can improve accuracy and speed up the clinical trial process. When you have a chance, check out the keynotes for d Farm 2019, which is taking place September 17th and 18th in Boston. d Farm is an innovation event specializing in clinical trials. Enjoy this podcast.
1: So what I thought I would do today is really give an overview of regenerative medicine and some of the things that we're doing in this field that are actually heading to therapy in patients and then how we can use some of these technologies to actually help patients through clinical trials. So this is actually a painting that hangs at the Conway Library right here at Harvard Medical School. And it shows the very first time an organ was transplanted in a patient. That was back in 1954. So many lives that were saved by this one single accomplishment. Yet we're still dealing with challenges in terms of organ rejection and shortage. In fact, if you look at the organ transplant wait list and you look at the data, over a 10-year period, the number of organs in patients waiting for a transplant, the number of patients waiting for a transplant actually doubled, while at the same time period, the actual number of patients that received a transplant was less than 1%, increased by less than 1% over that decade. This is now considered a public health crisis. So regenerative medicine really is a field that brings together many different areas. Cells, the use of cells for therapy, the use of cells and scaffolds together, and this other bucket we call enabling technologies. And if we use cells alone, then some of the things that we've done with cells alone is we take the cells from the patient. So we take a very small piece of tissue from the patient, less than half the size of a postage stamp. We expand the cells outside the body and we then put them back into the same organ, into the same patient, but we augment the potential for those cells to do what they need to do. So basically, using the same tissue-specific cells, we're able to then augment muscle function for the patient. this is now in patients, uh, going through the clinical trial phases in patients. This is another technology, same strategy. We take a very small piece of tissue from the patient, less than half the size of a postage stamp from the kidney that is done through a needle biopsy, through a minimally invasive technique. These kidney cells are expanded outside the body, then they're injected back into the same patient's kidney. And you can see here on the left is this preclinical model showing you the kidney before the cells were injected and all the new kidney units that were formed, all the functional units that were formed within that kidney using that strategy. And that work, we published the initial work in Nature Biotechnology, and this is now in patients in phase two human clinical trials, uh, 10 centers throughout the U.S. Basically, the patients with end-stage kidney failure go to the uh, physician, they take a minimally invasive biopsy of tissue, they expand the cells outside the body, place them back into the kidney. And we're seeing now in phase two clinical trials, same as phase one, we're preventing those patients and delaying those patients from actually getting into dialysis. So we can use cells alone for regenerative medicine. We can also use cells and scaffolds together. What does that mean? Well, here's a patient who presented with a urethral injury. You can clearly see the area of the injury. And you can see the bladder on the top. You see this major center, central portion that's missing uh, the structure. We go to the patient, same strategy. We take a very small uh, piece of, uh, of the tissue from the patient from the same organ, less than half the size of a postage stamp. We expand the cells outside the body. We then create a scaffold, and these scaffolds very much look like a piece of your shirt or your blouse. We tubularize it, we coat the outside with muscle cells, the inside with lining cells, very much like baking a layer of cake is what I like to say. You're just laying the cells one layer over the next, we then put it back into this incubator that allows the tissue to mature and we put it right back into the patient. The whole process takes about four to six weeks from the time we take the sample of tissue to the time that we implant it. These scaffold materials are made up with the same materials that we use for stitches in surgery. They're basically designed to go inside the body and they stick around for about three months and then they start to go away. So what happens during this time period? We have the cells and the scaffold. The scaffold starts to go away, and the cells that we put in, once they sense that that bridge is giving way, they start to lay down their own bridge. So six months later, you're left with the patient's own cells and the patient's own bridge, totally replacing that scaffold system that we put in. So here's that same patient. We have on the far left that X-ray. On the second panel, you see the tubularized structure. On the third panel is just a uh, drawing of one of our bioreactors that mature the tissue. On the far right, you see the engineer's structure. We implant it surgically, and here you see the patient's X-ray six years after surgery. When we published this series in The Lancet, we had up to a six-year follow-up in that patient series, and we are continuing the clinical trials for this at Wake Forest. Same strategy for blood vessels. Instead of using uh, uh, urethral epithelial cells, we're using endothelial cells. Instead of using uh, urethral muscle cells, we're using blood vessel muscle cells, but the strategy is basically the same. These are the bioreactors that we created back in the 1990s to condition the vessels to do what they need to do. We published that work in Nature Medicine. This is a carotid artery that was replaced using these techniques, and this is now, these technologies of using engineered blood vessels are now in various clinical trials uh, throughout the world. We have not implanted these in patients yet. These are hard valves, although we are starting clinical trials this next year using engineered constructs. But same strategy here. You can see here these bioreactors that help to exercise these valves. You can see their heart valve leaflets opening and closing uh, using these uh, same strategies. By, we are, we've actually spoken about using just cells alone and then using tubular structures, using uh, 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 flat structures, tubular structures. Hollow non tubular organs are another level of complexity because the structure is more complex, the cells are more complex, there's more interaction with other organs. Same strategy though. This was in fact the first organ we implanted, but I'm showing you these in, organ of compl- in order of complexity. Same strategy. We go to the patient four to six weeks uh, before the scheduled surgery. We take a very small piece of tissue from the patient, we expand the cells outside the body two major cell types, muscle and uh, lining cells. We then code the outside with muscle cells, code the inside with the lining cells, place it back in the incubator, and we then place it back into the patient. We published our initial preclinical series in Nature Biotechnology, and this is what led us then to move to the patients where we started a patient series, and we treated a number of patients with up to a six-year follow-up publishing that work in the Lancet, and again, we're continuing these clinical trials through the next phases of of, uh, experimentation in patients. So about 16 years ago, we had already implanted some of these tissues, we had made these by hand, and we started to think, you know, that's okay to build these by hand if you're using these for small clinical trials. But what about when you start to really produce these tissues and organs for tens of thousands of patients. We really need to scale up the technology. That's really when we started to think how can we scale up these technologies? This is about 16 years ago, so we started looking at just your typical desktop inkjet printer. We took Hewlett Packard printers, we modified the printers. We used, instead of using uh, ink, we used uh, cells on these uh, cartridges. We modified the printer so it had 3D elevators. Every time the printhead would go through, there was a 3D elevator that would uh, lower itself. And you can see here a two-chamber heart that was printed using this uh, Hewlett-Packard printer. About four hours later, you could see the whole structure beating, as you see here. So we started to do this and play with these printers. And these printers are now, we we don't use these. They they don't have, these structures did not have the structural integrity necessary to implant these surgically. So these printers are now basically this particular printers actually at the, uh, at the uh, Health uh, Care Museum in Washington, D.C. It was relegated to a museum now, not much use for it. But basically that strategy allowed us to then design specific printers over a 12 year period at the Institute where we design and build these printers specifically to create tissues and organs for patients. How does this work? basically several features that make these printers work. I'm just gonna talk about a few of these features. The first one is they have very small nozzles, about two microns. So that's about 1 the diameter of one human hair. So these are very, very small nozzles. So we can then uh, create these, uh, these cells and put them right where we need it. So we have precision. We can exactly and very precisely lay the cells where they're needed. Another feature of the printer is that uh, we basically have software programs that we design. This is Terra Recon. This is a commercially available software program available in uh, most major hospitals where you have an X-ray. They can do a 3D reconstruction of the the tissues that the surgeon or the physician can see. So we basically use these uh, commonly available software programs, but we developed our own software program that then we can download this data digitally into our own system and we can then drive the nozzles to print the structure specifically for that patient. So that's uh, another of the features of these printers. And we published that work in 2016 and we are now using these printers now for clinical trials as well. But another application of our printers is basically what's most relevant to you today. And that's designing these bio-printed structures to create miniature bodies on a chip which have reliability and have reproducibility in terms of their features. Because we've already been able to create these tissues and organs for patients, so the question is how can we then miniaturize the structure, put these on a chip, mix them with some of the other organs, and create a more relevant system for tissue testing. So we combined basically regenerative medicine technologies with biosensing technologies with a microchip industry. Put all three together, and we came up with these systems. This is a program that was funded by, uh, with $20 million by the Defense Threat Reduction Agency six years ago. Why was this important? As you know, as drugs are being tested, the market, and in terms of development, the industries using either animal models or 2-D cell culture systems. And animal models are not really fully reproducible of the human condition. And 2-D cell culture systems, where you just grow cells in a culture plate, do not really define what a three-dimensional organ really looks like. So can we then enhance the testing of these systems by using, instead of animals or cell lines, using true human tissue equivalents, And that's what the Excel program uh, was all about, basically to create three-dimensional, miniaturized, bioprinted structures that would create human tissue equivalents that we could then place into an integrated system with many other types of organs, and we could accurately model the effects of drugs and toxic agents. So how does this work? Well, in the same manner that we create tissues for patients, we create these structures, using regenerative medicine technologies. So what that means is, let's talk about the liver. I'm gonna talk about three specific organs just to give you an example and then dive into the system in general. But if you're gonna create a liver for a patient, you need to have all the liver cell types that the patient has. And not only that, you need to have them in the same proportion. And what else does the liver have? You have the cells and you have the glue that keeps the cells together. Where does that glue come from? Basically that's what we call the extracellular matrix. This is the glue that keeps the organs together. So what we do is we take discard organs, we take the cells away, we then process the glue, we make a gel out of it, and we add the same gel from organs, like in this case the liver, with the liver cells, mix them together just like we're creating an organ for a patient, and we then start to play with all the characteristics of the cell biology to make sure that the cells are interacting well together, interacting well with the glue together, and interacting in terms of the stiffness of the structure that also plays a role in how these organs function. So by putting all these elements together, we can really reproduce a lot of the features present in a normal liver all the way down to very small microstructures like bile canaliculi that are present, that's where the bile goes through inside the liver. And by doing so, we then are able to create these structures that basically you can leave them in a culture system long term without any major decline of function. So they do the things that livers do on that microchip long term, not just for a few days or a few weeks, but long term. And then by taking these equivalents, we start testing them. We see that they secrete the same stuff that livers secrete, they have the same enzymes that livers uh, secrete, and also they start to induce, if you give them drugs, and you process drugs with these structures, they start to break down into the components that normal humans would break down into. For example, if you take something like Valium, Valium gets broken down into several metabolites. When you put Valium into these livers, they start breaking it down into those same breakdown products, and they start to activate things, what we call SIPs. That you're pro- Some of you probably know what that is, um, and some of you don't, but basically it shows you what, what's happening through the liver, and you're seeing exactly what you would see in a normal human. So now we start saying, okay, we have these liver structures. What happens if we start giving them drugs? Well, if we, you know, as you know, Tylenol is toxic to the liver if you take it in high doses long term. So if we give these uh, miniature livers Tylenol, guess what? At the right dose, they do okay. High doses, they don't. Just like in a human, in a dose-dependent manner. Also, we can give them antidotes. We can use this agent called N-acetylcysteine that prevents the damage from the Tylenol, and guess what? We are also able to see that in this system. So they really reproduce what a normal liver does. Same thing uh, with hearts. I'm gonna show you a second example with these little hearts, miniature hearts. We make them the same way. Basically, we can use drugs. We can speed up the heart. We can slow it down with the drugs that are currently used for patients to do the same. And if we start testing these, we can actually mimic heart attacks. We can take oxygen away within 30 seconds. And in these little heart structures, we can mimic what a heart attack looks like, just like you would in a patient. And furthermore, if we start giving it toxic drugs, they start responding just like a normal human heart in a normal dose-dependent manner as you would expect in a human. And the third model I'm gonna share with you today is the brain, very complex. One of the challenges with the brain is what is called the blood-brain barrier because drugs May or may not penetrate that blood brain barrier, and it makes a big difference in terms of what you have in terms of effects viruses, bacteria, treatments, etc. Actually, there is no system out there currently that gives you a full reproduction of a blood brain barrier. All these systems are using either plastic or membranes. There was no system out there that could give you a natural response just like a brain would. So, guess what? went back to the drawing board, created the same system as we have for the heart and the liver and other tissues. Same strategy, how many, brain, how many cell types does the brain have? About six major cell types. We put them together, same proportion as you would in the brain. Put them together, go through the same process, use the same glue, use the same type of uh, strategies, and we then came up with a structure that truly has a natural blood-brain barrier totally natural, created entirely by the cells that we put in. There's no plastic or membranes creating that artificial effect. So same thing. We can really reproduce a lot of the features of normal human tissues. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So what happens now when we start integrating these structures? So this is a... I'm going to show you this, uh, this structure. It has multiple organs on the chip. We print them. So that's the whole... That was the whole uh, uh, goal of this, is to have a reproducible system and to do so with bioprinting, just like we print tissues for patients, print these miniature structures where they can be reproducible. And so we, what we do is we can print the microfluidic chamber, we can print the microchip and the tissue equivalents at the same time. So it's all done at the same time in a sealed system. So as we print the microchip, we're also printing the, the uh tissue equivalents within the microchips uh, all at the same time, and then we can create uh, multiple models. So here's the microchip that contains six different types of organs. In this particular one, you can see here, we have liver, we have heart, we have intestine, testes, blood vessels, lung. So, and they're all surviving under a common media. It's just like the, your, your body has only one uh, type of blood going through it, Right? Typically with cell cultures, each cell type requires a different media. So it was very important to create a single media that would actually feed the whole microchip. And this is showing you the stability of these structures long term with a single media. And then here we start playing with drugs. Here's a uh, uh, chip. It has on it five uh, five different organ equivalents. And we're going to give this this microchip, we're going to give it a drug that that is currently very commonly used for chemotherapy. And we're giving the prodrug called uh, capcitabine. And when you give this drug, the liver breaks it down into the common uh, effector for the uh, cancer, which is 5-FU or 5-fluorouracil. So this is showing you what happens. You can see on the top, that if the liver is there, the prodrug, the liver metabolizes the prodrug into the 5FU chemotherapy, which is then toxic to the heart and the lung. And that's what you're seeing on the top. But if you remove the liver, the prodrug doesn't get metabolized, doesn't get processed, and therefore there's no toxicity into the heart or the lung showing you that it's doing exactly what the body does, right? The liver is breaking out that prodrug into its active agent, which in given, if given in high doses is going to cause toxicity. But that prodrug gets metabolized in the liver. If the liver is there, you see it. If the liver is not there, you don't see it. Just what we want to see and what you see in, in a normal response. Okay. That's really nice. We're seeing things we typically see in humans. But now we're starting to see things we usually do not see in humans at all. Let me give you an example. This is a drug called bleomycin. How many of you have heard of the drug called bleomycin? A lot of you. This is a drug that is commonly used for cancer and everyone knows is very toxic to the lungs. So you have to be careful when you give this drug to patients that the patients don't get lung toxicity. So we basically used the bleomycin on these microchips, and we saw, as expected, that it was toxic to the lung. But to our major surprise, guess what? We started to see that it was also being toxic to the heart. That's very unusual, basically not reported. There's no reason for that to happen. We were perplexed. What's going on? Well, it's interesting that by the end of this study, the cardiac structure stopped beating. It was that severe. And the drug is not known to have heart toxicity. It's known to have only lung toxicity. So what's going on? We verified that the drug was not, in fact, toxic to the heart. They just really didn't do much into the heart alone. But if the drug goes through the lung, what's going on? Once the drug gets metabolized by the lung, we realize that the lung is secreting this one protein called interleukin-1-beta. And guess what? Interleukin-1-beta is toxic to the heart. But the th- challenge about this is by the time you see the lung toxicity in the patient and you withdraw the drug before that happens, you never get to see the heart toxicity. But guess what? The drug is in fact toxic to both the lung and the heart, but nobody knew it. But now we know because we have these systems which are very sensitive. So we're now starting to see things that we could not see before in patient responses that we need to be aware of. Let me give you a couple of examples. We've taken a group of about 30 different drugs that were recalled by the FDA, and we test them in our system. They were recalled by the FDA for many, many reasons. Here's uh, uh, astimizole-hismanol, a drug that was on the market for 11 years, and it was pulled from the market because there, by then there were enough patients to show, that showed the response where they could make a connection. Now I want you to, re- to remember two things about this. These drugs had been tested in animal models and no toxicity was noted. These drugs had been tested in cell lines, human cell lines, no toxicity was noted. This drug went through phase one, two, and three clinical trials, and no toxicity was noted. It took 11 years to figure out that this drug actually had this toxicity. So we placed it in our system, and guess what, within a week, we knew this drug was toxic in our system because it's very sensitive. Here's another example. This is Resilin. Another drug was used to treat uh, diabetes. Was on the market for three years. Caused 63 deaths due to liver failure. 63 deaths. Same thing. The drugs were not shown to be toxic with cell lines or animal models or phase one, two, and three clinical trials. Within our, in our system, within a week, we knew these drugs were toxic. So how are we using these systems? We're using them to screen drugs, and we're also using them now for personalized medicine. One of our, uh, one of our uh, scientists at our institute, Alex Cardall, with Shai Salker and other scientists at our institute, is working closely with a cancer center at Way Forest where we're now creating these cancer tumor models. We've been doing this now for about seven years. This was an initial grant that was funded by the NIH. And the principle here is that we take at the time that the patient presents with the tumor, and they take the initial biopsy to get the diagnosis. We get a little bit of the tissue. We create these tumor models on a chip. We then test these tumors using uh, different drugs. And we can now advise the oncologist about which drug to use best before they give the first drug to the patient. So instead of giving a chemotherapy agent, waiting six months to see whether it worked, giving a second chemotherapy agent, waiting another six months to see whether it works, you can now then bypass that challenge by using these tumor models. Let me give you an example of this. This is actually uh, a system that we have where we can create the tumors, but we can also add the immune cells. From the patient so at the time that we take the tissue sample from the patient from the tumor we can also take a sample from the lymph node and have the immune cells within there and combine them and here's a patient who was treated this patient's 50 years old about 50 years old with melanoma had gone through two cycles of chemotherapy different chemotherapy agents each one costing several hundred thousand dollars nothing worked so they came back had another biopsy taken we created a tumor model. And we decided, you know what, this, this is an agent that's actually showing something. So we told the oncologist just that. The oncologist went to treat the patient. Within two weeks, the patient called the physician to tell him that for the very first time his lesion was receding. He actually saw his lesion start to disappear. Anecdotal case, one case, but shows you the potential and the power of these technologies. So why are these regenerative medicine technologies important in terms of allowing us to create these personalized treatments? Basically, we want to decrease the cost of drug development. We want to pick up toxicity before we get these drugs to patients. We want to be able to better screen these drugs using regenerative medicine technologies we want to disrupt the current clinical trial paradigm. Get, you know, take care of this a lot up front before you get it to the patient. And then to have better access to optimal treatments for patients, not just for regular care, but also for clinical trials. So it gives me uh, great pleasure to announce today that because of this need to not only advance medicine, but also to positively enhance the cost and outcomes of these patients who participate in clinical trials, Wake Forest and Javera, the company that has been started by Jennifer Byrne, who's here in the audience right in the front, we share this goal. Wake Forest and Javera, we share this common goal, and they just signed, Wake Forest, our institution, and Javera just signed a letter of intent yesterday, actually, where we will be working to sign a fully integrated operating model where we are going to, advance specifically industry uh, clinical trials to ensure a greater impact of these trials to all patients using as many strategies as we can to bring these technologies for the future. To summarize then what I've tried to do for you today is really, really give an overview of where we are with regenerative medicine. At the institute we're working about 40 different tissues and organs. About uh, 25% of these are already in patients. We have about 10 different uh, tissues in patients for therapy, using these strategies of using the patient's own cells, expanding the cells outside the body and putting them back into the same patient. These are tissue-specific cells. So we're creating a, a specific organ. We're taking the cells from that organ and expanding and creating that tissue to put it back into the patient. And what I've tried to do for you today is really give you an overview of the strategies that we use, where we can use cells alone. We can use cells and scaffolds together. We can use bioprinting. We talked about different types of tissues and organs, flat, tubular, hollow, non-tubular, solid organs. And for us, the goal is to keep impacting the use of regenerative medicine technologies, not just for therapy for these conditions, but also for diagnosis and better impact for clinical trials.
0: We hope you enjoyed the podcast from D-Farm 2018. D-Farm 2019 takes place September 17th and 18th in Boston with a full day dedicated to mobile and R&D on September 16th. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks, everyone.